when I landed in New York City, I had no savings. I had sold my car to get to New York and my monthly rent of the apartment in Greenwich Village was more than what I made in a month at my day job. So I was always, to me, New York City was always an economic hurdle. It was a tough city, but you're young and adventurous and other young people who are young and adventurous. And that's the, the excitement of being in New York City. Hey, this is Achim Novak, executive coach and host of the My Fourth Act podcast. If life is a five-act play, how will you spend your fourth act? I have conversations with exceptional humans who have created bold and unexpected fourth acts. Listen and be inspired, and please rate us and subscribe on whatever platform you are listening on. Let's get started. I am so delighted to welcome Jameson Courier to the My Fourth Act podcast. And by the way, that's his official name, but I'm going to call him Jim as we speak. Jameson is a celebrated gay writer, literary critic, and publisher. He is the author of seven novels, five collections of short fiction, and a memoir. His writing is also included in many literary collections. Jim's novel, The Third Buddha, about the aftermath of 9-11 in Manhattan and Afghanistan, was translated into French in 2021 and just recently awarded the Prix du Roman Gay in France. Jim's reviews, essays, interviews, and articles on AIDS and gay culture have been published in many national and local publications, such as The Washington Post, The Los Angeles Times, Lambda Book Report, Bay Area Reporter, The New York Blade, Out, and Bosley Positive, and there are many more. In 2010, Jim founded Chelsea Station Editions, an independent press devoted to gay literature. The press also serves as the home for Jim's own writings. And I gasped when I read this on your website. I'm going to read it, Jim, which now span a career of more than five decades. Books hey, yes. <laughs> scary, isn't it? <laughs> and just for our listeners, Jim and I are exactly the same age. The books he has published by the press have been honored by numerous literary awards. Jim divides his time between his studio apartment in New York City and a farmless farmhouse in the Hudson Valley. In recent years, Jim has also emerged as a prolific painter. Hello, Jim. Good morning, Akram. How are you? I'm well. It's so nice to have this conversation with you. We had a little pre-chat and I realized we're very much the same age. We briefly crossed paths in the 90s, but we don't know. And probably know a lot of the same people, too. We know a lot of the same people. (laughs) What I'm curious about, because you've had an extraordinary output as a writer, but when you were a young boy or teenager growing up in the South, Who did you think you wanted to be at that time? I don't think it was so much who I wanted to be as what I wanted to be. I had, as a boy, a great love of music and the theater. I grew up watching Peter Pan and The Wizard of Oz in black and white, and then going to see The Sound of Music and Mary Poppins and Cabaret, all these wonderful musicals at the theaters. It was the MGM retrospectives were starting at that So I had a great love of 
music in the theater. And that's what I wanted to do. And high school and college, I did a lot of theater uh, performances. Mm -hmm. And uh, when I graduated from college, I wanted to work in the theater. I grew up in a suburb of Atlanta, but I couldn't find theater work there. So it just came to be that I needed to move to New York City. That's where I ended up. And of course, I found some work in the theater, but I kind of immediately knew that I didn't have that kind of talent to be on stage and performing, and I I just didn't have those skills. And in the back of my mind, I always knew that, well, I want to write and direct. I want to be a writer, you know? So I started writing stories, and the stories I started writing were about my friends who were in the theater on their tours and their performances and backstage. That's how I became a writer. I appreciate the remark you just made. I also started as an actor, and I worked quite a bit, but deep down in my skin, I didn't feel like I was skilled enough to have right. a career. You know, and there's something powerful for all of us, for anybody to say is, maybe this isn't the right path for me, even right. though I thought this would be it. Uh, you just mentioned what you first wrote about. You initially got published a lot, and correct me if I'm wrong, in the 1990s, which I think of as, that was really a heyday of original queer publishing. I mean, there had been, been lots beforehand, but suddenly mainstream publishing houses right. were publishing it. There was a recognition of it as almost its own genre, right? a new voice. And you came of age as a writer at that time. What stands out for you for, about just being a gay voice? Like I said, I was writing a lot of these theater stories. Then suddenly the world changed. You know, we got to the mid-1980s and the yeah. AIDS epidemic. And I realized that what I was writing needed to change. My early stories were, they were entertainments as friends became sick and dying and became a care partner for several of them. The emphasis changed. I was no longer writing to entertain myself or my friends. I was writing as therapy. I was writing to understand what was going on in the world and trying to make sense. And I was a member of several workshops and I remember the such hesitation about bringing in stories about gay men and AIDS. I mean, people just weren't writing about it. There were a few, but that's how I found some successes is going to these workshops with the stories about men who men and their families and friends who were impacted by the disease. And lo and behold, I got I was lucky to find some champions in these workshops and found my way into journals and literary magazines and eventually found a publisher. So that was my trajectory is is suddenly what I was doing, the love of of entertaining suddenly became necessary as therapy. So I want to ask you a question that I I think might be really annoying, but it's forming in my mind, which is, as you describe what how your writing changed, how close to memoir was the writing in the short stories versus fiction or 
Or how did you blend those two? How many? Well, it's a fine line. And there were a couple of stories where the details are completely accurate. You know, the care, but the characters' names are different. The situations have been changed. I think the success of gay fiction in the 1980s and 1990s was a lot of memoir stuff. I'm aware as we're speaking both about the con or in the context of HIV AIDS, but also as I lived in New York at the time, New York has changed so much. Oh, yes. The city oh, yeah. has changed. And again, I want to ask just a really pragmatic question as somebody who was writing a lot. Like today, New York is ridiculously expensive. Like it's it's hard to arrive as, as a young writer and, and imagine that you're going to live in downtown Manhattan and that you can afford it. How did you manage just the mechanics of your life? Like you have to pay the bills, you're, you're writing your stories, you're, you're, take, you're in workshops. Everybody says New York is so expensive now, but New York was very expensive back in the 1970s and 1980s. I remember that when I landed in New York City, I had no savings. I had sold my car to get to New York and my monthly rent of the apartment in Greenwich Village was more than what I made in a month at my day job. So I was always, to me, New York City was always an economic hurdle. It was a tough city, um, but you're young and adventurous and you know young other young people who are young and adventurous. And that's the excitement of being in New York City. And that's the desire and the drive. But it was always expensive. And I was lucky to have friends that helped. There was one year that I had to give up my apartment at the last minute unexpectedly because I couldn't afford the rent. So I just told the, called the landlord and said, I can't pay the rent. I'm going to move out. I moved in with a friend and slept on her couch until I could get another job and finally save enough money to get another apartment. And then I lived in another apartment where I had, I think, six roommates. But those kind of situations don't curb your drive. They just kind of fuel it. They and they excite it and they give you a purpose and a dream. You gave us just a little hint of what the payoff is for being New York and, and which is a sense of this this microcosm of other amazing humans and other things going on that you can interact with. And so I'm curious, what nourished you as a person, as a soul around being in New York at that time, around people that you met, around experiences you had that maybe you couldn't have in Atlanta? Like what happened there in terms of- Well, I mean, my first jobs in the, the city were theater jobs. I worked as a press agent for several theater companies and stuff like that. And my friends were theater friends. So I was always going to the theater. I was always seeing a play. I had a friend who was a theater critic. So I would go with him to see shows. That's a whole community. And, and, and you know, there was a whole, there was a thing many years ago called second acting where you could go to the Broadway theaters and at intermission, you yeah. could sneak in and see the second act. And so there was a whole community of young gay men who were working in backstage professions yeah. at the theater. And those were my friends. And I was also trying to be a writer. So it was in a moment in the city where there were bookstores everywhere. I mean, you could go every block, there was like a bookstore. I remember Saturday nights before I would go to a bar, 
I would do the bookstore tour in the village. You could go a different light, Oscar Wilde, the Barnes and Noble on Sixth Avenue. There was another bookstore in the East Village. You could do a whole tour of bookstores. The notion of a walking bookstore tour is just fabulous. I, and, and it doesn't exist anymore. I mean, you don't, no. it doesn't. My version of that, we were New York, the same would be because I live downtown, East Village, West Village. You know, I could just walk three, four blocks and stumble into some basement bars where there'd be some great old blues singer singing stuff. And there was no cover. You stumble in, you have some right. to drink, you walk out again. That's so unimaginable in South Florida where I live right now. It's a whole other way of being that you described so beautifully with your illusion there. Now, I, because you've been so prolific and we're going to have listeners who know your work, but listeners who don't. So I'm going to ask you to shamelessly and just, if you wanted to just talk about one and let's go with a novel, one novel that you go, as I reflect on this novel, I'm proud of it. I'm proud of what I've said of it. And this is why I want to remind people of this book, since we're talking about your creative spirit. Which one do you want to talk about? Well, I'm proud of all my children. So, but of course, you have to say that. But you, but but just pick one for now to talk about. Okay? okay. Well, you know, my first novel was Where the Rainbow Ends, which is a very deep dive into the AIDS epidemic and friends who lived and died and survived that epidemic. And it's an epic look at going into it and coming out of it. I remember when I finished, uh, it took me a long time to write. And it's a very long book. I mean, it's on the scale of a novel, it's quite thick. And I remember when I finished it, it was around 1997, which was when the HIV cocktail was coming into prominence. And it was kind of like people were saying it was the end of the epidemic. And I remember when I finished it, I was going, oh, my goodness, I'm out of sync with the world. No one's going to publish this because it doesn't exist anymore. But I realized that those stories never end. You keep telling those stories. There's so, and there's still so many stories to tell. To me, that was a very proud um, achievement to finally finish that book. In the 90s, what I remember around being a gay writer in New York, suddenly some gay writers had access to mainstream publishing houses. You could make a splash, but not everybody had access to it. There was this pressure almost around what success could look like for a queer writer. What happened in the mid-90s was that Stonewall moment that where we reached the 25th anniversary mm -hmm. of the Stonewall. So there was a great interest from publishers and editors to seize that moment and to find books and writers that would look at that and bring it into history. And, and we were also reaching the whole ACT UP stuff had brought great attention. So there was a great amount of attention around gay and lesbian lives. And that 25th anniversary was such a moment that it was kind of like a swell up to that. Mm -hmm. And then 
The interest continued up until the end of the decade, and then 9-11 changed everything, and we changed the whole landscape of, of publishing. So, Because part of being Manhattan is that lots of other writers around. And uh, How much did you or did you not feel like you're part of a community of queer writers? You always felt part of a community of queer writers. I remember... There was always a book signing or a book reading event. There was a tremendous amount of, we had gay magazines, we had gay anthologies. There was always a sense of trying to fit into here, trying to submit to this, writing for this. At that moment, I was also doing book reviews as a book critic. I did non-byline reviews for Publishers Weekly. So... And I was given all the gay books. So I read books like The Violet Quill Reader. And if there was a book that I really loved, I would try and champion it to newspapers, having articles published in the and the, the Washington Post and the LA Times and the Dallas Morning News and the St. Louis Post-Dispatch, all because I was, get, you know, funneled these books, you know, anonymously and loved them and wanted to tell their stories and and champion them so there was a great sense of community and there were writing workshops and playwright workshops and they were a lot of gay and lesbian um writers so it was a great sense of community you yourself were were part of a community at that point the cornelia street we were called three hots and a cot but we had these events at cornelia street and all sorts of amazing writers like you showed up and read with us, which was just right, and that went on for several years, correct? For about four years, yeah, yeah, yeah. So, the, I mean, the city was full of opportunities like that. Do they exist now? I don't know. So, you made this, in my mind, wonderful leap and since you from Jesse Startup Press. You know, um, I believe the date is twenty ten, right, and. Uh, and I, I'm a, I think of myself as a serial entrepreneur, so I start stuff all the time. But that, for me, would feel really daunting. My memory of the time you described me, actually, because I was friends with a well-known writer, Jaime Manrique, and his right. ex-partner, Jim Sullivan, had started a press and was also publishing a lot of my friends. So oh, that, was, that, yes. that was my sense of, oh, yeah. somebody can just start a press and you you take the authors you love and you promote the heck out of them. Right. For our listeners. Just describe, like, what happened in your brain where you said, okay, I'm going to start a press. Well, as I alluded before, 9-11 changed everything. It changed the economics, and it changed publishers were cutting back. There was no longer the gay and lesbian sections of bookstores. What was also happening at the same time was the rise of the internet. The first internet websites were coming in and it was such a great opportunity. And so we saw this shrinking and expanding content, but somehow gay and lesbian writers kind of moved to the the edges again. And I found it very easy to get stories published, but more difficult to find a book publisher. So I was lucky to have a friend, uh, Steve Berman, who ran a print-on-demand press, Lethe Press, who kind of mentored me into the print-on-demand system where, you know, you only print the book that 
someone buys. In other words, you don't, you don't carry the inventory, no. you don't carry the back expenses. That's something for me to pursue. And I was also looking at something that there's a writer, Patricia Nell Warren, who wrote The Front Runner. She, after many years of being published, she got all of her rights back and started her own press. So she had control of all of her works. And I, and I was writing a lot of stuff and that's what I wanted to do. I wanted to have a print on demand press where I had control of all my works, but I didn't want to do it by myself. So I wanted to publish other writers and I wanted to publish writers who were having difficulty, um, finding publishers just like I was over the years. I've been a judge for many literary competitions, whether they are new writers unpublished books, uh, the Lambda literary awards, the publishing triangles. I do a lot of, you know, backstage judging. I saw a lot of books that should be published. And I remember saying to one writer in particular going, you know, if I were a publisher, I would publish this book. And lo and behold, when I became a publisher, I published it. And that was our mutual friend, David Pratt's book, Bob the Book. Bob the Book. You know, I, I had a love of that book and I thought yeah. that just needs to be out. So that's the trajectory of how I became a publisher. Yeah. A word from your sponsor. That's me. I invite you to go to the website associated with this podcast, www.myfourthact.com. You will find other equally inspiring conversation with great humans. And you will also learn more about the, the My Fourth Act Mastermind Groups, where cool people figure out how to chart their own fourth acts. Please check it out. And now back to the conversation. I'll use a little analogy to go deeper with the publishing. When I was 24, 25, I... I suddenly decided I wanted to write theater criticism and I, I got a gig with the paper in Washington, DC. And suddenly I was a theater critic and it changed how people saw me. Like people, I could do things for people. People sought me out. I could promote them. So I'm wondering the moment Jameson Courier became a publisher, what I'm making up in my mind, did suddenly you could do things for other authors. You probably got some attention from aspiring writers. What was that like to be seen in that light? It was, you know, it was a little daunting because I realized my economic limitations and my editorial limitations. And I wasn't, I never had a growth plan for the press. Mm -hmm. Everything I do myself, you know, I do the book covers designs, I do the book interior designs, I do the publishing, I do the marketing, I do the accounting. Um, so I wear all the hats. So um, I did get a lot of interest from other authors and I had to turn down some that I knew that were good. And I also had to turn down some who I knew were good, but needed a lot of editorial work. And I could not, there were a couple of books that I did deep dives as, as an editor because I really, really loved them. But there were others that I just knew that I couldn't spend that much time being an editor and then also be a publisher and a writer myself. In many ways, the lifestyle you describe is it's almost like the the New York fantasy, right? Right. <laughs> you have the place of the city, you have the country bad, 
And as we get older, we just end up spending more place in the country. Describe to us like how you found your place in the country and what you, Jim, love about spending more time there. Somewhere around 2015, I knew I was going, I was reaching a retirement age and I knew I didn't want to spend, I have a very tiny apartment in the city. And I knew that I didn't want to retire and live in that tiny apartment. So I began looking around the metropolitan area, everywhere from the Poconos to Hudson Valley to the Berkshires to the Catskills. I looked at many places of where I wanted to uh, to retire. And, and I thought I was probably going to end up in the Poconos because my parents visited there every year and I would visit them. But I had a friend, a writer uh, that I published, William Sterling Walker. He and his partner bought a house in Copake, which is um, lower Columbia County. Mm-hmm. And they invited me up for a weekend and also invited their realtor to come visit. And the realtor took me around a couple of houses and I didn't have a lot of money to spend on a property. So I saw this farmhouse and farmless farmhouse in a very nice little hamlet in Upper Columbia County. And I knew that if I didn't seize the moment, it was going to pass me by. So I made an offer and lucked into it. And it was, this was right before this was 20 the fall of 2018 so i you know lucked out into everybody else escaping the city during the the pandemic years so well how sneaky of your friends to invite the realtor for that (laughs) (laughs) well they knew that i had been looking and i'm not sure if they knew a lot of people in the area but they probably wanted their own community too so it's worked out wonderfully i just i love I love the area that I'm in and I, the house had been not abandoned for 35 years, but kind of like not kept up for 35 years. So I had to do some work on it and became a project. This is actually how I became painting more is that I was inspired. I've always loved the work of Vanessa Bell and Duncan Grant, who are two Bloomsbury artists. And I, became aware of them because I was a care partner for friend who had AIDS, who adored the Bloomsbury group. So I had some books and paintings and, and knowledge of what they had done with their farmhouse in Charleston, which is south of um, London. And they did all the paintings of all the furniture and all the walls and stuff like that. So when I moved into this quite bare farmhouse, I go, oh, I want to get paintings for, you know, but I don't have that kind of budget. So out of necessity and out of love, (laughs) I decided that, okay, I'm going to teach myself how to paint and I'm going to just paint things, you know, my backyard. I'm going to paint the brook. I'm going to paint the field, friends. So that's how I became more involved with um, painting was to decorate my home. Yeah. I I follow you on social media. I've seen a lot of the paintings that you share, and I hope I don't trivialize them by my description, but that what I receive from them, there is a a childlike pleasure and and delight in the things that you see, and they're seen almost from a place of innocence. 
I'm also inspired a lot by folk artists, which is a very naive, very simplistic look, a flattened look, and they show the joy of the moment. So I'm inspired by that. And I don't want a dark brooding painting on my wall. I mean, to look at every morning, I want to live in a nice, colorful space that inspires me to want to stay here. So... Now you're painting more and more, and and I know your your paintings are actually being shown in, in some group shows. So they're they're having a life beyond your farmless farmhouse. Uh, how do you feel about that? I post my um, paintings on Instagram and Facebook, and I'm thrilled by the reactions of, of friends who, who like them. But it makes me very nervous when when they go, "Oh, is this for sale?" Because they were never painted for sale. So it's hard for me to let go of them. I am doing an exhibit in a art gallery in the Berkshires in the first two weeks of June, Mm -hmm. of which I'm trying to determine which paintings I'm willing to show and also to let go, you know, if someone wanted to, to purchase them. But the intent of doing the show is not to sell the art is to, I won't, I'd rather have people just look at it. I'd rather, you know, if a museum were to come by and go, oh, we'll put it in the museum, I'd be thrilled. But it just makes me nervous that someone wants to buy it. So. But what I'm thinking about as you're talking, it's another arti- form of artistic expression. Right. You, sell, you sell your books, why not sell the art? Right. Right. Why not give it away? And the creative source will just right. keep creating right. more paintings. Right. I have had friends who have visited me at the house and they go, oh, I love that painting. And I will take it off the wall and go, here, take it with you. Because, you know, that way I know, I know where it is. (laughs) Yeah. As you're describing your life right now and and your art, I'm thinking Jim is so settling into a simpler, sweeter version of life compared to what Manhattan could be like. Am I am I hearing that correctly? I do want a simpler life. I'm now 67 and I don't want the anxiety. I don't want the pressures. I don't want the stress. Uh, those are those will always be in your life. You know, you'll you'll find them for something. But I don't see myself as a Manhattanite so much anymore. I have I guess in the mental space, I am a Manhattanite because I don't think that ever leaves you. Once you've spent so many years in the city, you've you've got that knowledge of it, that kind of ingrained experience. I want something different now. I've had that. I mean, I've gone through that. I don't I don't need to revisit it. I do revisit it. I mean, I still write stories about Manhattan. I still write stories about the A's years. I haven't given that up. I just approach them differently because it's my past. I'm not going to ignore it or regret it. I embrace it and incorporate it into what my life has become, which is something different. I'm curious at 67, as a very accomplished writer in many forms, do you 
think about the future? Are you aspirational about the future? Or is it more like, oh, let me go moment by moment and see how life unfolds? Like, where are you around that? Yes, I am aspirational. I mean, I always have a list of things I want to paint, of painting ideas. Mm -hmm. And I have a list of stories I want to write. What I have found is I don't want to do the same thing that I've done before. So I want to write, I'm doing illustrated stories. I've, I've done two illustrated tales, both of which are, you know, have relationships to AIDS, the AIDS epidemic, and gay men. But I've done illustrations for them and published them as small little books. And those have given me great pleasure to take this project from beginning to end to, to do every single aspect of it from writing the story to determining the illustrations to understanding how to design it as a book and then publish it and market it as a book so it's kind of like building a bookcase and then putting the book in you know They're beautiful so, yeah so that's my aspiration is i i'm enjoying that i'd love to do more illustrated works I do want to write another novel, and I want to write a novel that uh, revolves around a gay man of a certain age, because, as I said, we like to see ourselves reflected in, in the fiction that we write, and how many books are there about a gay man of a certain age? There are some, but, you know, I want to write my version of it. So. Well, I wholeheartedly cheer you on around writing that uh we're releasing this episode in the middle of what's often Gay Pride Month in June. And it's such an unsettling time in the country because we have so many more gay rights, but in some parts of the country, there are forces who try to dismantle those rights. And at the same time, I'm somebody, I'm, I'm 67 like you. I, I spend lots of time marching in gay pride parades and I no longer feel like doing that. And right. I'm wondering, so what's what's your feeling about Gay Pride Month and gay rights, an elder in our literary community? Right. How do you feel about all that? You know, it's still important. I, I don't know who said this, and I hope that I paraphrase it correctly, is that coming out is a process that never ends. You can come out to your family and friends, but then suddenly you're walking around the corner at the grocery store in an aisle and you need to, you know, make sure that someone understands that you're a gay man. I live in a very small hamlet in Upper Columbia County. I identify myself as a gay man when I purchased my home, but I am trying to be a very visible gay presence in my community. I'm fortunate to have several gay and lesbian compatriots within the area. So coming out is never really ends. I think you can, by extension, look at it that gay activism never ends. You are always going to have to speak up and assert who you are and assert what rights I would like to think that we would get to a point where that's not necessary, but we've been around for quite a bit and things change and we still have to keep raising our voices. So it's never a moment to be quiet. You have to keep asserting who you are. And 
it's unfortunate that some of the um, conservative voices get louder and more strange as as we age and and move through this world but we still have to keep fighting and asserting who we are and our rights i appreciate that call to action thank huh. you now i'm sure our listeners want to know where can i find more of jameson courier's work and obviously there are these days the online bookstores but do you have websites? You mentioned Facebook and Instagram. Where would you like send people to send people who are curious about learning more about you and what you do? Well, I have a Facebook account, Jameson Courier. I have an Instagram account at Jameson Courier. I have a website, jamesoncourier.com, which lists lots of the books and some of the art. I have chelseastationeditions.com, which is the publisher website, which has all the books that are currently and still in print. And then I have a new website called chathamjunction.com, which is the repository for the art. That's a wonderful way to end this conversation. <laughs> thank you so much for chatting with me, but also thank you for the incredible work that you've put out over the years and for being well, thank you, a voice for our history and our community. Thank you. Thank you. Bye for now. Like what you heard? Please go to myfourthact.com and subscribe to receive my updates on upcoming episodes. Please also subscribe to us on the platform of your choice. Rate us, give us a review, and let us all create some magical fourth acts together. Ciao.